Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Sport et al podcast. Hope you're all keeping well. First thing I want to do is give a few shout outs. I've been meaning to do these for a good while now. I meant to do it the last episode but I had it recorded before I got a chance to do the shout outs. First shout outs of the podcast go to David Earls and Niall Morn. They get a shout out because they answered the correct question to one of the posts I put on Instagram. So the question was the only Grand National horse to win, or sorry, the only horse to win the Grand National twice, which was Red Rum. Um, so fair play, boys. Two men are two gold women, serious knowledge of sport. Um, one is an absolute athlete, unbelievable hurler. Um, the other is an engineer. He's working with his outfit. So fair play to the two boys. If you aren't following the Instagram, give it a follow the underscore sport et al underscore podcast i throw up random sports facts and also a few sports quiz questions i said i'd give a few shout outs for anyone who answers correct questions on instagram anyone who gives me a sport topic that i do a podcast on which is today's one and i suppose i could give out a million shout outs genuinely um, a shout out to any person that has interact with me around the podcast through instagram in person whatever it's the exact reason i started the podcast people engaging with me through as i said social media or in person and talking about an episode saying did you ever hear about this conspiracy theory which i'd be genuinely interested in or saying you should do a podcast on a b or c so keep it coming as i said i didn't do this to you know become the next two johnnies or something like that if only two people were listening i'd still do it because i enjoy it and i get i get a kick out of conversations i have with random people i said i wouldn't start naming names but the likes of shane cribbin kyle carney boys that are always sharing and listening to the podcast on their stories fair play and really appreciate it today's podcast is also very significant in terms of shout outs because As I said, it's the first podcast that I'm doing based on someone's suggestion. That man is Cormac O'Callaghan. He is a proud Dublin man, also a massive sport head. One, genuinely one of the smartest guys I know, absolute maths whiz, working for Paddy Power. Um, I think it's a perfect industry he should be working in. And he suggested today's topic. Today's episode is going to be on racism in sport. And more specifically, one of the most racist sports that exists. It's obviously a very topical subject in recent years. It's also a very difficult topic to research because, honestly, some of the stories about exclusion, violence, you know, segregation were were mental, were crazy. I learned a lot about it. I often found myself like down a random rabbit hole, researching random racist events that occurred and there's genuinely too much to put into a podcast i could go on and on and on initially i was thinking how will i do a podcast about that what will i look into and usually it's slow to get the ball rolling but by the end of it i'm thinking i don't have enough time here this could be genuinely could have been a a two or three hour long podcast but i have to condense it down into i suppose what i feel is the most important and entertaining parts Unfortunately, we all know what racism is. And I put a poll up on Instagram to see how many people have 
either experienced racism themselves or witnessed racism in sport. And unfortunately, there was a lot of people that said they had witnessed it. I personally have witnessed it myself playing for a club, a football club in Ballyhanas, where there is a huge amount of non-nationals. I've often heard racist slangs being thrown around. First thing that comes out of a player's mouth against a player of colour is about their colour. They don't attack anything else. It's the first thing. It's always the first thing that people go to. And even just in school, I've asked a couple of students, like, have you been subject to racism on the sports field? And like, without hesitation, they're like, of course, like, you know, nearly every game, which is absolutely terrible. There was numerous fights on our football team due to racist abuse. You know, you obviously have to stand up for your team. And, you know, whenever we heard that, a brawl would ensue. And I've heard stories since I've been researching it. I've heard stories from other people saying the exact same thing. And I'm kind of talking about GA here initially, but based on my interactions with students in school, a lot of them would be playing um, soccer and they have the same story. I suppose before I kind of break down what the podcast is going to contain and the different sections, I always say in my biology class or my science class when we do evolution that racism is the most stupidest thing in the world because all it is is how a person evolved due to their environment so maybe it's a very scientific way of looking at it but maybe if you do look at it that way it makes it more simple and plain that everyone's the exact same it's just how that person evolved based on where they were from so it's extremely simple at the core of it but as we see people make a massive deal out of it some of the stories that we're going to talk about i can only describe the people that were involved as totally brainwashed it's absolutely sick how people acted and, how, and the lengths they went to to segregate themselves from other people. We know racism as a disease. It's not inherited. No one knows the difference until they're taught it. Friends, family, your communities, these are the people that influence it, good or bad. I would like to think it's improving, but when we look at some of the statistics and the dates on that, and then we kind of fast forward to one of the biggest civil rights movements in recent times, which is only a couple of years ago, has much changed. But I'm not here to end racism. I'm here to give you a lowdown of how racism has developed in sport and one sport in particular, how bad the racism was. So we're going to talk about one of the first racist protests and how it is associated with sport and where some of the black protest symbols come from and then we're going to deep dive into one particular sport and dissect how racist it was how oppressive it was how segregated it was and how that has changed and how one person has influenced mass change in one sport just because of how good he was one of the most prominent racist protests occurred at the 1968 olympics in mexico city Two athletes from the USA track and field team stood on the podium, displayed one of the most powerful protests in recent history. The USA track and field team that year won 28 medals and they set eight world records. So they were very, very successful. But the USA team nearly didn't go to the Olympics. Martin Luther King Jr. said before the Olympics that unless something was changed about the racial 
injustice in USA, they would not compete. So the year before 1967, a fellow called Harry Edwards, he actually started the Olympic Project for Human Rights. This was an organization to promote equal rights in the Olympics. And their first mission was they were going to plan a boycott that the USA would not take part, part unless there was justice, unless all athletes were treated the same. Because previous to that, black athletes, everything was different for them. Funding, housing, how did they travel to the Olympics, the food they got, everything was subpar. Everything they did, they were treated like they were inferior. And so the Olympic Projects for Human Rights, the OPHR, that was founded to stop this. Their goal was to, first of all, boycott the Olympics. They also had a couple of other goals to get rid of the Olympic president, um, who was also racist. They had a couple of goals that they wanted to achieve, but the main one was to start a protest and say that they would not go to the Olympics. And what I find strange is, usually sport is a way to break down barriers, not to put them up. I think they say that the universal language is a smile. But for me, it's it's like a game of two-touch or something. I can imagine joining in on a game of two-touch with any person. Don't care where they're from, what colour they are, what language they speak, what age they are. You don't really have to say anything. You join in on a circle and you know what game they're playing. The only goal is to keep the ball off the ground and only touch it two times. This kind of happened when we were playing football in school. On a break between classes, we had a new Ukrainian student. He had very little English and hadn't really made friends. He was only there a couple, of, a couple of days. Obviously just went through a very traumatic part of his life. We went on the break and we started playing football. And I said, come on, join in. And laughing and joking, he didn't know any of the lads' names. He probably didn't even know my name. But for five minutes, we were playing two-touch. Everything was out the window. No one cared where he was from, what he'd been through. And that goes for everyone. I remember when I was on holidays one time, I played a game of ping-pong with like a 30-year-old fella. Don't know where he's from. We didn't say one word. We played for about three hours. And that's what I'm saying. I usually would think that sport gets rid of all the barriers. But back in the day, and still, somehow it's used as a way to build barriers. Throughout the 1900s, there's a huge amount of incidents that display this. If you look at even the people that went to the Olympics, the black people that went to the Olympics, the majority of them came from white, white schools. This is because they had way more funding, way more equipment, way more coaching for athletes. Whereas the black colleges, African-American students that attended them, they had inferior facilities, didn't have access to equipment, coaches. And it kind of also raises the point about stereotypes of black athletes we have stereotypes that well black athletes are good at track and field because they're genetically superior and and better at running but location and access plays a pivotal role in in a sport that a person plays some of the reasons why black people excel at sports like track and field is because there's very little equipment needed or they could do it anywhere Things like swimming, things like cycling, golf, horse racing. These require investment and they require equipment that some of them did not have access to. Therefore, they became better at these sports. It's not like they were made for them. We see white black athletes compete in all different types of sports. A lot of the time it's because of investment and also obviously because of location. As my girlfriend said when we were having this discussion, 
well obviously like Kenyan runners are running at a higher altitude so they are more I suppose back to evolution they are more suited to their environment but accessibility and funding has a lot to do with it so the protest that was taking place in 1968 as I said it was one of the most prominent ones in history the two athletes they competed in the 200 meters ironically enough so the two runners were Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They were two black runners that were running for the USA. While they were standing on the podium for the national anthem, they did so without shoes on. They raised their fists in the air and they had their head bowed. Three very simple things, but each part of the protest had a significant meaning. So the raised fists in the air, that is now known as the black power salute. And this is one of the first times it was done on the global scale. They didn't wear shoes because they were trying to represent black poverty. They, one of them, um, I think it was Carlos, had his tracksuit half unzipped to show solidarity with blue collar workers. He also wore a beaded necklace to represent people who had died without anyone saying a prayer for them. Now they were wearing one glove each and it's kind of significant in the image they had planned to wear two gloves each but what happened was carlos left his gloves back at the olympic village and so what happened was tommy smith gave him gave carlos one of his gloves and he wore the left glove and smith wore wore the right glove and so smith raises his right hand carlos raises his left hand if you look at the image that's actually associated with this podcast you can see they raised different hands. The overall gesture or the meaning of the glove was supposed to be unity. So in a very, very simple demonstration, you have two very well-known athletes displaying black unity, black poverty, people who had died without prayers, and also helping blue-collared workers. So very, very simple, but very strong, very powerful. Now, what is also significant about the podium is competitor in second place who was an Australian runner Peter Norman he was wearing a badge along with the other two two lads um, the, it was the OPHR badge the Olympic Project for Human Rights badge this did not go down well in Australia so Peter Norman although he was he didn't raise his fist all he was doing was wearing the badge he got abused he got a huge amount of abuse when he went back to Australia and only in, I think it was 2012, but it's only very recently, the Australian House of Representatives, they issued a formal apology and described the protest as a moment that advanced international awareness of racial inequality. So later on, it was actually deemed very heroic. Unfortunately, the other two lads, they weren't just subject to abuse, but they were also suspended from the US team, banned from the Olympic Village. Now, the US team opposed this. They challenged the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee. They are essentially the governing body for the Olympics. But the IOC came back and said, if you follow through with this, we're going to ban your whole team. What's also significant is the protest was deemed a violent breach of the fundamental principles of the Olympic spirit. Which is ironic because the Nazi salute, which was displayed in 1936 at the Olympics, was described as acceptable in competition because it was a national salute whereas 
this protest wasn't national. It wasn't to do with a particular nation. It was worldwide, which is probably more powerful. Both runners, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, were subjected to very harsh racial, racial abuse when they returned home. It wasn't like they were deemed as heroes. They were worse off. In person, from the media, they were deemed as vigilantes. People trying to ruin the Olympics, trying to ruin the Olympic spirit. This protest actually led to the development of Rule 50. Rule 50 was a rule created that stopped any kind of demonstration, political demonstration, religious or racial propaganda at the Games. Now this rule was, I wouldn't say bent slightly, but it was kind of avoided. In Tokyo 2020, the Great Britain women's national soccer team, they took a knee before the game. But the IOC stated that, well, it's kind of changed its ruling now. It says that athletes that are permitted are permitted to make gestures on the field of play, provided they are done so without disruption with respect for fellow competitors. So what they're saying there is you can do it as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. And it's on the field of play. So like, let's say a celebration or something like that after a goal. But you're not allowed to do it on the podium. You're not allowed to do it at kind of, let's say, the event. You can do it while you're competing, no problem. But on the podium, you're not allowed to do it. And that came from Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Now, the two lads, they actually went on to become successful athletes. Both of them played in the NFL. Unfortunately for Carlos, he had a very serious injury that hindered him. He also had a rough time. His wife committed suicide and it led him into a depression. So the man had a bit of a tough life. Thankfully, Tommy Smith had a bit more of a successful journey. He was pretty successful in the NFL. And unfortunate as it is, it segues nicely into the NFL, where we've seen Colin Kaepernick take the knee. He took the knee as a protest against mainly police brutality in America, as well as the overall idea of racial injustice. This was also an extremely powerful protest that we still see today on a regular. And often we see actually both them put together. We see people taking a knee and raising the fist in the air. It's essentially a combination of both. Now, I can't remember exactly. Don't quote me on this one, but I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. also who said the idea of a protest is to disrupt how things happen normally. To make people stop and take notice. And that's what they did. I suppose that's what they did. They made a big disruption in the Olympics. People started to wonder why are they doing this and started looking into maybe some of the injustices. What I don't like now is for the past two seasons in the Premier League, we have seen people take the knee before the, the games. Initially, there was a massive deal about it. Pundits before and after the game, there was nothing really about the game. It was all about racial injustice, about how players are treated differently, subjected to racist abuse, how maybe some black managers don't get the same opportunities as white managers. And it was a huge deal. You couldn't get away from it. And that was the idea. But as it goes on and as we're in the second season of it, no one is questioning its significance. They know exactly what's going to happen. The whistleblowers, we take the knee. So has it lost its value? That's why you see some footballers not actually taking the knee. I remember Wilfred Zaha was one of the first one who said he would not kneel 
And it wasn't because he didn't believe in racial justice. He believed that the kneeling kind of protest was losing value, that people weren't talking about it enough, that all it was was a formality. And only recently we've seen a, a terrible school shooting in Texas, and I've seen a meme on Twitter, and it was practically a circle. And it said, school shooting occurs, people go mad about it on Twitter, on Instagram, social media, send their thoughts and prayers, nothing is done, and it happens again. You can transfer that idea over to the racial protests. There's a protest, something happens, there's a massive protest, we talk about it for ages, it dies down, we do this insignificant, well, which is now insignificant protest, something happens, make a big deal about it and it goes round and round and round in a cycle so if sometimes you're getting annoyed and sick of what seems like just another protest the whole idea is that we keep at it that we keep disrupting normality this has to happen because it goes out of people's heads what has happened and why they're doing it so every time there's a new protest it's to keep it in the back of people's minds well not really in the back in the forefront of people's minds the problem is it's going to the back of people's minds they just forget what happened and they continue on as normal and as we'll see in the second half of it if protests don't happen things don't change the sport i'm going to talk about to think how much it has changed in a short space of time is mind-boggling some of the things that people did to make it not change are sick they went out of their way so that other people, mainly black people, even women, could not take part in the game. So a very influential member that was directly connected to this sport said that it wasn't the fans, it wasn't the majority of the players, it was the game as an institution that was racist. It was designed for failure. It was designed to exclude rather than include. So as I talk about the sport, note that I'm not talking about the sport itself or the people that play it. I'm talking about the rules and regulations that was implemented for segregation. As previously stated, when I'm talking about the most racist sport, I'm talking about it as an institution or a system. A lot of people could argue that soccer is one of the most racist sports because of all the high-profile cases of racism that we've seen in recent times. Likes of Evra and Suarez, England walking off the pitch versus Bulgaria, Boateng walking off the pitch. We see on Instagram every day the abuse that footballers get, especially the ones after the Euros. So Rashford, Saka and Sancho, they got a torrid time. Now, at the end of it, we did see a more positive light to it, where the mural got defaced and people started painting positive messages and putting flowers down. There is also a short documentary about a club in Israel. It's known as the most racist club in football. It's an absolute brilliant watch, for the wrong reasons, but it is scary, the influential power that segregation has on people's mindsets. Uh, it's Betar Jerusalem FC, I think that's how you pronounce it. And it has a strong anti-Muslim and anti-Arab ethos. They have a die-hard fan base called La Familia. And you can hear them chanting sometimes, debt to Arabs. 
or they also had a banner saying uh, Batar Pure or something like that. So I would recommend anyone to watch it. It's only 10 minutes on YouTube. And as I said, it's scary. The, the brainwashing powers that groups of people have on each other. The sport that I'm going to focus on is golf. And before people start saying golf's a great sport, I love golf. I think it is one of the most skillful sports there is. I've tried to play for years, tried to play for years, and I can't get better. Some people have a natural swing. I genuinely appreciate anyone who's good at golf because it takes such patience. It is a totally different sport to what I'm used to. You know, if you play football or GA, it's the flow, the state of flow is more adrenaline based. Whereas if you're, you know, if you have a lot of adrenaline in your body as a golfer, you're not going to do well. The whole goal is to recreate exact shots and exact moments like you have done previously with high amounts of pressure and you have to be as calm as possible. Maybe that's why it's not a good game for me. But it is one of the most skillful sports and the hardest sports that I've ever tried. I have so much respect for anyone who is very good at it because it takes years and years of practice, years of dedication, years of being absolutely terrible at it before you can be good at it. A lot of sports you can pick up and enjoy as an amateur. Golf, if you're not hitting that ball well, it's the worst sport in the world. I'm looking at this through a lens regarding racism and regarding segregation and the rules and regulations that have been put in place from the authorities that run the game. It has always been known as an upper class white man's game. But the origins of golf, well it comes from Scotland. It was a Scottish game and it originated in St Andrews. And ironically enough it was a game for common people. There is a theory that it started among farmers or soldiers who were idle in fields and just started hitting a rock with a stick. And so it developed and developed and the, the rocks then went to a ball made of goose feathers, then a rubber and then the ball we have today. Um, there's 336 dimples on a golf ball. So again, could be a question that's on the old Instagram. 336, they were made for a smooth flow. So initially it was totally rounded, no dimples. And then they realized more dimples, smoother flow. It became a game around the 1800s and this is when it kind of started going towards the white upper class uh, association with the game. One of the main and most obvious reasons for this is the investment needed. You think about, you want to just start golf, you want to go out and play around the golf. You have to have clubs, tees, balls, then you have to get our, our trolley, then you have to get to the golf club. And you also have to pay green fees. Some places don't even allow you in the place unless you're a member. Others, a lot of others, have high green fees. And the more exclusive the club, the higher the green fees. So even if you're a regular player, you're wealthy, you might be able to play golf in certain areas. So this is the first barrier that we see for people that want to get involved in golf. This is why it has naturally veered into upper class game because of the cost involved and then when there's an opportunity to differentiate and you know segregate yourself and make it more exclusive people usually take that chance if you look at i think it's over in dubai or qatar the lower the number plate 
the higher the price. So lower number plate represents a lot more wealth. I think it was number seven. The number seven number plate, single number seven, was sold for 35 million. When there's a chance for people to flaunt their wealth, it's usually taken. Golf is an example of that. So when a lot of American soldiers returned home, a lot of them were out in Scotland, and that's where they picked up the game. When they returned home, they made this an exclusive game. The Scottish actually tried to encourage all types of people, good or bad, black or white, to play the game. But as it was kind of dispersed over different countries, this idea of white upper class was prevalent. And one common misconception about golf, and I taught this and would tell people this all the time until I did research, and maybe the place I read it was also wrong, but I've seen this loads of places, that golf doesn't stand for gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. I was told for years, I was told on the Crow Park rooftop tour that that was actually correct as well. I was pure delighted with myself because he asked the question and I gave him the answer and he's like, yeah. But... Through my research, apparently it's derived from a Dutch word, um, kolf, K-O-L-L-F, which means stick or a club or a mallet, which makes sense. But it also makes sense that golf would stand for gentlemen, only ladies forbidden, because for years, the game marginalized females and they weren't allowed play until the last 30, 40 years. The last club in Dublin, the last club in Ireland was in Dublin, the Royal Club, uh, Royal Dublin Golf Club which was in Port Marnock, and only last year allowed female members. I remember hearing a story, I actually think it was on the rooftop tour at the same time. He led with that question, what does golf stand for, and then told a story, and I can't remember exactly, I've tried to look it up but can't find it, about how the president, and again, I'm a bit sceptical on the details here, but I think it was the president of Trinity. The first time a female president was elected, they automatically got a membership to Port Marnock Golf Club. I think it was Port Marnock. I know there's a lot of I thinks here, but the reason I know that fact is because I remember him telling me and it makes sense that it was the only one that didn't allow a female in. So Port Marnock had a rule that if you were the president of, again, I think it was Trinity, you were automatic member of the club. And then there was you know, a massive debate about will they let the president, the female president, become a member and again i can't remember that they are not if anyone can find the story please send it to me we need confirmation on that so the history of golf marginalizing people whether it's females or blacks is very prominent in 1930 a fellow called clifford roberts he said the quote as long as i'm alive all golfers will be white and all caddies will be black and that's significant because he actually bought and owned Augusta Golf Course, where the Masters takes place. The Masters itself has a rich history of being extremely racist. For decades, black golfers were not allowed to take part in golf. They were not allowed to be members. They were certainly not allowed to play in the PGA. Most of them, as Clifford stated, were caddies. And the people that were playing were white. And they would actually get abuse. The caddies would get abuse for even holding the bag wrong or not giving them the club quick enough or picking the wrong club. Even the fellow who invented the golf tee, George Grant, black man, was not allowed to play golf. He was forced to play golf with his invention that everyone else played in his back lawn. When a fellow called John Shippen, who again was a black man, he was the first one to participate in USGA 
events. When he showed up in 1896, all his white competitors threatened to quit. After Shippen had tried to play for years and years and years, they actually implemented an explicit ban on black competitors. Specific ban on black competitors. In black and white, pardon the pun. And again, the theme of money comes into it. A lot of clubs would raise their rates to extortionate rates, even if they're private or public, so that people were isolated. People of lower classes were not allowed to play. There was a crazy story where six black men, they were playing in a golf club in North Carolina in the mid-50s. So again, when we talk about the history, it's usually the early 1900s to the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, they were told that the course was closed to the public. But it was actually owned by the city, so it was technically a public course. But what happened is that the city decided to lease it to a private white golf club, as a private white golf club, for a dollar a year, just so that they could avoid integration. And one of the six men said, we're out here for a cause. It's the cause of democracy. So they refused to leave, but later that day, they were actually arrested and they were charged for trespassing. All six were convicted and given sentences. But in court, it was confirmed that the course called Gillespie course had to desegregate. And just before the course was about to reopen, it was burned to the ground. And rather than rebuild it, they just decided, we'll sell it. Rather than integrate black people into the golf course, they'd rather have it burned to the ground. And there's countless stories of golf and how it is closely associated with white supremacy. So if we fast forward a couple of years, it was 1961 before the first black golfer, and Charlie Siffords, played in a PGA. And it was 1975 before the first black golfer took part in the Masters, a fellow called Lee Elder. And he was originally a caddy at the Masters. Or he used to caddy in Augusta all the time. And he used to have to secretly play holes in Augusta. I think it was 11 and 12. They must have been hidden for some reason. Or at least two other um, members or players. And again, as I said earlier on, he was ridiculed for holding the bag wrong. And he won the Monsanto, I think it was called, the Monsanto Open, um, which was his first pro tournament. And this technically qualified him for the Masters, but they didn't want it. They had refused black golfers before, and it was unclear whether he would play or not. Would they just blatantly refuse him, or would they change the rules? So it wasn't until 1975 that he was actually allowed to play, or a black golfer was allowed to play. Racism in golf was prominent throughout the years it wasn't until a certain player started to play which helped turn the tide and helped golf come into the 21st century to become more inclusive a fella called tiger woods you might have heard of him and the thing about tiger woods is that he was so good that people could not deny him he was dangerously good that he was probably scaring a lot of the major people in golf, a lot of the major white people that have battled so long to keep black people out of the game. They knew that he was so good that they couldn't, that he was going to do wonders in golf, or at least they thought he was. He was the definition of a child sensation. He was playing golf from the age of 18 months old. At five years old, he was playing in competitive competitions. There's also a clip of him going on, I think he's like two or three years old, going on to a TV show, hitting a golf ball, and his swing is 
his swing is unbelievable at like two or three years old. And there's usually a common theme with these child sensations. At four, five, six, they are so much better than people their age. They stand out so easily. There's a mad hype around them. They are expected to become the best. And I suppose the bar is always set too high. They're kind of set up to fail. You always hear these soccer players, the next Messi or the next Ronaldo. Once you hear that, they're obviously going to fail because it's nearly impossible to, to live up to them. So Tiger Woods was deemed the next big thing. And as we know, he actually lived up to it. He was unbelievably focused throughout his teenage years and fulfilled his prophecy. And I can't remember a child sensation that lived up exactly to his hype. You know, you have, I know Theo Walcott is one of them that like, okay, played for Arsenal for years. People say he didn't reach his potential. You have loads of different players like that. But Tiger Woods not only lived up to his reputation, he exceeded it which was nearly impossible because people just expect him, expected him become, to become the greatest golfer ever, and he essentially did. In terms of racism in his teenage years, there is a chilling interview with a teenage Tiger Woods, and he says that whenever he walks into any major country club, he feels like he shouldn't be there. The interviewer asked him, like, do you experience racism or segregation? And he said straight away, oh yeah, I feel like I shouldn't be there. They look at me saying... What are you doing here? You don't belong here. And the best thing about that interview is he seems so focused. He he seems very mature for his age. And he said that he has the ability. He knew how, how good he was. He said he has the ability to change golf, that he could be as big as Michael Jordan in the NBA because he is now the next big black golfer. He could become bigger than Jack Nicklaus, who is probably the second best golfer a lot of people would argue he could be the best golfer. Jack Nicholas still holds the most majors, the record for the most majors, which is 18. Tiger has 15. So, you know, you could argue that he was one of the best ever. But Tiger has had the most influence on the game. He changed it into an unbelievable global sport. And I know if we take the podcast I said about conspiracy theories, Michael Jordan changed the game, Tiger Woods changed the game, these also line up with, you know, worldwide television and televising massive events and sponsorship. So, yes, they do coincide. And I would say Tiger has a slight unfair advantage because Jack Nicholas was uh, well before his time. But we can't underestimate the influence they had. It's not just to do with TV. It's to do with their him and MJ, their absolute domination of the sport. And it actually helped that they were black because people kind of wanted to write them off and they kept proving them wrong. In the same interview, the interviewer asked him, is there one competition that you want to win? And without hesitation, he says, the Masters. And he doesn't give the reason because it's the most prestigious event and you get a green jacket or all the other things that people want to win it for. He said straight away, because of the racial injustice or the way black people had been treated at the Masters previously. We know that it wasn't until 1975 until a black person was allowed playing one. So he w- he was gunning for this. This was more than just a competition and just proving that he was the best. This was practically a kick in the face or you know a fight back at the institution itself. And the best part about this is his first Masters at the age 21, he went out and absolutely smashed it. 
he won it by the largest winning margin ever. 12, 12 strokes. So he didn't just compete. He just made a joke out of it. He, as I said, make a, made a statement saying that this is what you are missing out. If you didn't allow black people in the sport, you wouldn't have this. He was unbelievably driven. You could see the passion in every shot at that Masters, more so than usual. And a couple of you know statistics around Tiger, just to describe how good he was. We all know Tiger Woods. It's like the MJ. If you don't know anything about golf, he's the first name that comes to mind. If you don't, don't know anything about basketball, Michael Jordan was the first name that came to mind. But I think people forget how good Tiger Woods was. He nearly holds every major record. As I said, Jack Nicklaus has the most wins. And yes, there is other people with with records that, you know, might challenge one part of them. But if we look at his records overall, as we've said, he won the Masters, the youngest Masters winner ever in his first one, won it by the largest margin. He also holds the record for the largest winning margin in a major, which is 15. He holds the record for the most consecutive cuts made, 142. And he also, this is the, this is a mad one. He's the longest ever number one, like consecutive, which is 281 weeks. But his accumulative time as number one is more than 13 years. So for 13 years of his playing career, he has been number one. We talk about, I know, I know golf is a very sustainable sport. And when you think about the investment, I talked about the investment at the start. Yes, it is extremely expensive to start and to sustain. But if you think of the careers of golfers, they can play until any age. They can play until 60 or 70. And even if they do retire, they can give golf lessons very easy. You would likely see a golf coach quicker than you would see a one-to-one coach in football. It's very hard to get paid good money at football level. You probably start off not getting paid, etc. So golf in the long term is a very sustainable sport. But 13 years at the top is scary. You know how golf changes all the time. These are He's actually ranked number one. It's not like Messi, Ronaldo, where it's like, oh, I think he might be better this year. It's like, you know, being number one, winning the, winning the Ballon d'Or 13 years. He was so much better than everyone else. It was actually scary. They didn't know what to think. And my favorite part about it is there was so much anticipation around him becoming pro. Like they thought he could do it at 17, 18. And he waited, waited, waited. And it wasn't until 1996 until he became pro. Then 1997, it's like being the youngster that everyone is looking at and then just smashing it, doing exactly what people thought you wouldn't do, but they knew you had the ability to do. So he stood up to the pressure. And that, I suppose, was the most unique thing about him. He was so young and seemed so unfazed. When he got onto the golf course, he knew that I'm so much better than everyone else. I should be here. I should be number one. There was no doubt in his mind. And Going back to that interview, you could see how confident he was. Imagine saying as a teenager, and there was absolutely no sense of arrogance at all. He said, I could be the next Michael Jordan. And you you believed him because he said it with such confidence and such grace. And what he went on to achieve, it set the bar for golfers, but also changed the way people looked at golf. It was forced to become a more diverse game. Now, as I said previously, one of the PGA's diversity directors said 
diversity is still one of golf's biggest issues. But Tiger Woods helped break down that barrier. The viewership of golf in blacks and whites skyrocketed. He was now a superstar. What he went on to achieve was incredible. He's had his ups, he's had his downs, we know that. I'm not condoning any of it. It's nearly inevitable. He was a child star. And although it never happened, his blimp never happened when he was younger, yes, it did happen when he was older. And his name was dragged through the dirt for years and years and years. But he's back. And he's won the Masters again. And that was the best thing about it. Like, I don't know if people understood how important or how significant that was. You know, the journey of this golfer who changed the whole sport comes back after everything he's been through and wins it again. The significance of what he's done was recognized by the president and they gave him the presidential medal of freedom and it's given to anyone who's made like a massive contribution to the national interests of the US through world peace, culture or any other significant public or private endeavor. And to top it off, he became a member of the Hall of Fame last year, deservedly so. Obviously, there's no doubt the impact that he's had on golf is more than significant. It is monumental. But the pathway was paved by other golfers, such as Elder, first man in the Masters. Also, uh, Rennie Powell, one of the first black female golfers. She was actually a daughter of, I forget the fella's name, something Powell, anyways. He had to create and start his own golf club he made it by hand a, a golf club for back black golfers because they couldn't actually play so these stepping stones of golf becoming a more diverse game even though i think it's only around eight to nine percent of professional golfers are black i think there's only two in the top 100 currently it's still marginalized but tiger woods made that massive breakthrough and as i said it was because of talent and that's kind of the sad part about it because if he wasn't as good, would things have changed? People had to fight and protest and literally go to jail just to play a game of golf. And it was only until they realized, hold on, this fella is so good and could make us so much money that they kind of changed the rules and they allowed more diversity into the game. And they were like, oh no, we love diversity because this fella who was uh, had a Thai mother and a black father was the, going to be the greatest golfer ever. He will be known as one of the goats of his sport. He's gone down in the history books as, you know, a Phil Taylor, a Ronnie O'Sullivan, Michael Jordan. What he did for the game was unmatched by any other player. The debut Masters win summed up Tiger Woods. Hype fulfilled emphatically. Not only did he come and play in the Masters, he destroyed them. Put them to shame. As the saying goes, you had my interest, now you have my attention. But he really got their attention in the Masters and he kept that attention. He captivated crowds for years and years. And even when he wasn't doing so well and he was messing, he was still captivating people one way or the other. He made a whole institution change the way they think. And small couple of points about golf, to, just to finish off. In the Masters, it's not all it seems. We look at the Masters on TV and look at it as this fancy, prestigious event that, you know, top people go to. They pull the wood over the eye sometimes. 
it actually dyes its lakes so it's, they're, they're more blue. And they dye their bunkers, but they actually don't use sand in their bunkers. They use quartz so that it looks more like a bunker. Cell phones are banned and they add bird noises into the background. So golf as a whole is kind of a symbol or a performance of perfection. And we know no sport is perfect and no person is perfect. So I think Tiger Woods is a great example of this. The irony in his career being nearly perfect and being viewed by the media and everyone as a saint, but then also realizing that he's not perfect. So there you have it. The perfectly imperfect influence on golf. Boom. Episode four. The most racist sport. Don't endorse it. Thanks if you're here at this point. Thanks a million. Um, Go give the Instagram a follow. Give this a rating. Like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. You know yourself. Jeez, I never thought I'd be saying that. Anyways, thank you very much. Take it ham and cheesy.